Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling here today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. And what is it about horror movies uh, that just hits a little differently than other genres? And what is it about them? Uh, that makes them the perfect vehicle for people of colour to tell stories of unrest. Throughout the show, you're going to hear from a few film heads, uh, horror film heads included, from various parts of the industry about their memories of the genre and why they think it has the power that it does. You'll hear from director Xavier Bergen, screenwriter Cody Bedford, filmmaker Kane Gonda and writer Ying Di Yin. Yeah, and before we get into all of that, though, can we just talk about what happened on Q&A on Monday? So hot. Is it cultural diversity or is it performative cultural diversity? Because, for example, on on this show today, the song that I'm going to perform is called Stand For Something. And, yeah, you know that voice very well. It is rapper and recent Race Matters guest Ziggy Ramo. He joined Q&A uh, on the panel this week, which started off with a focus on a recently released report by Media Diversity Australia called Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories? Uh, the report gives us some concrete stats for something most black and brown folk in this country have known uh, very well since childhood, which is that Australian TV is white as hell. Uh, specifically... Only 6% of TV presenters, commentators and reporters have either a First Nations or non-European background. Uh, But anyway, back to Ziggy. The song I initially was going to perform was called April 25th. Um, And this is a song that I was not allowed to perform. Like I I was basically censored in in the fact that the ABC said that it was not appropriate. So is it performative? Because me sitting on this panel ticks off a box for the ABC that is cultural diversity. But if I'm not able to express my perspective, is it performative or is it actual cultural diversity? Because as Barnaby said, it's important that we have freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So if we have seats at the table, but then we are not able to express our lived experience, are we actually having cultural diversity or is it performative? Yeah, I unpack this briefly on Brecky during the week. And one of the most infuriating things about that entire segment was the gaslighting of Ziggy's art. And it's something that we've all been through as black peoples, as people of colour, and where there's this debate going on and it's, you know, we have one person that's um, being neutral and one person that's on the opposition. And that's kind of really representative of what I saw 
in that session was these two evils at play and one was censoring Ziggy and his profoundly powerful music that was at ease for white consumption, um, microaggression, and the second was the more obvious and that was the overtly harmful censoring of Ziggy with cherry-picking his lyrics to defame him and frame him as aggressively black when it came to the one specific lyric in April 25th, um, I Hate the Anzacs, which he unpacked further. But there was just an outpouring of hypocrisy that I saw on that whole segment and it collectively spoke directly to both micro and macro aggressions of black people within the colony and the way Ziggy responded directly to the root of the problem and not get lost in the gross gaslighting that was occurring left me completely speechless because I would not know how I would have handled that type of space. Yeah, he's incredible. Ziggy Ramo is actually doing a live performance of his entire record. It's called Black Thoughts uh, from the Sydney Opera House on Saturday the 29th of August. Uh, So that's next Saturday at 9 p.m. Do put it in your diaries. This is Race Matters. You are with Darren Lasagas and Sada Khan. And up next, we're going to be talking uh, about the unique power of horror as a genre when it comes to telling our stories. But first, let's take a listen to the song uh, Ziggy didn't get to perform on the ABC. Uh, It needs a language warning. It's called April 25th. April 25th. How real is this? Love the Anzacs. We all love the Anzacs. Screaming April 25th. How real is this? Love the Anzacs, but we hate those whack blacks. Fuck those whack blacks screaming. Fuck those whack blacks. Fuck those whack blacks screaming. Fuck those whack blacks. Fuck those whack blacks screaming. Fuck those whack blacks. Fuck those whack blacks, but we love the Anzacs. Uh, what you gotta be sorry for? You wasn't here before. No savage blacks from the seashores. It's free people. You weren't here when they were not equal, and now they surely are. So fuck they cross generational traumatic scars Tired of holding they hand and giving our cars I heard they get money from the government So tell me why the fuck are they still struggling Fuck those whack blacks screaming Fuck those whack blacks Fuck those whack blacks screaming Fuck those whack blacks Fuck those whack blacks screaming Fuck those whack blacks Fuck those whack blacks But we love the Anzacs Uh, what you gotta be proud for You wasn't on the shores of Gallipoli me gave out life, so how can you take solace in a sacrifice? Something doesn't add up, something's not sounding right. Lest we forget, unless they were black, then suddenly we start erasing all the facts. You didn't give your life, you weren't an Anzac. If you gonna love your soldiers, you gotta love the blacks. But you fly your flag, water off your back. If this don't make sense and you lost your way, just remember how much you hate it when I say, Fuck those. Anzacs screaming, fuck those Anzacs, fuck those Anzacs screaming, fuck those Anzacs, fuck those Anzacs screaming, fuck those Anzacs, fuck those Anzacs, now how fucked up is that? Yeah. Now how fucked up is that? We pick and choose our history, we rearrange the facts. We fought for a country that didn't see us as humans fast for 50 years and we still seen this nuisance. We didn't know our places a second race, second rate opportunities. We should be grateful for, but why for a country that constantly chooses to ignore 50,000 years of history before you hit our shores? So if you hold your heart for the insects, you accept the history, both white and black. We can't take it back. We we can't take it back, we can't take it back We love the Anzacs, learn to love the blacks Screaming, learn to love the blacks The way you love our Anzacs Learn to love our blacks The way you love the Anzacs Screaming, learn to love the blacks The way you love the Anzacs We can't take it back We can't take it back hey.
You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Daniel Sargas. And uh, earlier this year, South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho made history uh, winning three Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay for Parasite. If you are a fan of South Korean cinema, though, you'll know that this was far from Bong Joon-ho's debut. I spoke with writer, actor, publicist, and a longtime friend of the show, Ying Di-yin, about The Host, which is Bong Joon-ho's breakout monster movie. The film is essentially about a chemically mutated monster in the Han River who attacks the people of South Korea and the dysfunctional Park family um, needs to rescue one of their own when she is captured by the monster. So that's a real general coverage of the film. But what's really interesting is he weaves so many different themes within it, some that everyone's really aware of from the protagonist being like that loser family which is how he describes it um to and once so i guess to delve a little bit deeper once the monster attacks um the u.s military comes in and the city's on lockdown and that's kind of a biting commentary on like the lingering presence of the u.s in south korea at the time and just kind of the power dynamics between power structures as well as family dynamics and just how the city and how the government uses this incident, which they created themselves because the the chemically mutated monster um, was born out of an incident, which is actually based on a real-life case um, in the 2000s where um, a US military official was convicted of dumping hazardous chemicals into the Han River. So he he's based the film off a real-life um, court case called the McFarlane case, which was really interesting. So just how their own actions have impacted the city and how it doesn't even, they don't even support or protect the people in that sense. Yeah, you mentioned the word lockdown, which in the past few months sets off so many alarms whenever people throw that word around. Um, yeah. There are some scenes that are quite eerie to watch given the state of isolation, the pandemic around the world. What were what were some of those scenes specifically? Yeah, so once the US military comes in, the city's in lockdown and they believe that the monster is releasing this deadly virus and I'm doing deadly quotation marks because um, hopefully this is not giving it away and hopefully you've seen it, but it's it's, it's not always what it's seen. It's, it's been, been out for a long time. <laughs> true, true, very true. If you haven't seen it now, but if not, go to SBS. We're living it. <laughs> it's real. Um, so everyone's in quarantine. Everyone that was affected and at the site at the time is also in quarantine and the family... Um, breaks out of quarantine to rescue their little girl. But so that's in itself interesting, being in quarantine, being locked up, being tested. And then when they're going through the streets of South Korea, kind of in the shadows trying to find um, Han Seo, there's a scene which I thought was hilarious, was when there's a, people going about their daily business but wearing masks and they're told to look out for the flu-like symptoms. And there's a scene where they're at this stoplight it's busy stoplight in South Korea. Everyone's wearing a mask except this one man at the front um, who takes off his mask, coughs, spits into this puddle of water, and everyone's already a bit tense and, like, shoulders are up to their ears. And then this car comes by and sprays all the water on them, and everyone's just like... It's meant to be a, a very comedic scene, and it's quite funny because I was like, that could happen to us. And that scene encapsulates kind of our weird reality. 
Too true. True God there. Um, that's Ying Di Yin speaking about Bong Joon-ho's monster movie, The Host, here on Race Matters. Yeah, oh my God. 14 years on from this movie, but capturing so clearly and accurately the state of mind during a pandemic, like collective tension, paranoia, the public displays of dread, like that scene with the car in the puddle. I can fully imagine that scene playing out right now outside. Yeah, sure of it. And even like the... like people that are the rebellion, like Mm. anti-vaxxer, lockdown, all of that. Like there's all these like dynamics and personalities that will come out of a situation like that. And that 2006 film kind of speaks directly to our reality right now. It's a bit too much. It's a bit too much. I mean, you may, you know, uh, you know, own up to it or not, but if you are like on public transport and you're seeing someone coughing with no mask on, you're a bit like, oh, like what? Like, should I move away? You know, I mean... If you haven't at least thought about that, you're lying to yourself. Sorry. Come on, think about it. If someone <laughs> coughed on a train this time last year to now, oh. it's not the same gut reaction Loaded. you're having. Loaded cough. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Loaded uh, cough. You are with Darren Lasagas and Sarah Khan. And yeah, I caught up with writer Ying Di Yin, who recently reviewed The Host for The Guardian. And we spoke about the core of any monster movie. I know that The Host is not necessarily dubbed a horror movie, but a monster movie. Um Obviously, a horror encapsulates so many ideas of what um, horror can be, but specifically, the host is known as a monster movie. And I feel like this mm. is such an obvious cliche question when you're talking about monster movies, but who do you think the real monster is? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Bong wants you to question that as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the monster is never definitive in any of his films, as um, if you've seen Parasite or if you've seen Ocha. Um, the real monster is, I think, the the power structures. It's the government that lets down its people um, and it's that unpredictable narrative where Bong doesn't focus on the monster itself. The monster is a, is a vital character, but he turns his lens onto the um, quintessential dysfunctional family who in the end has the moral compass. They are... Um, the unlikely heroes, they're flawed and complex and they're the one that saves the day and end of the, at the end of the film. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the monster might be the power structures that don't come to support them when they're meant to be supported and rescued. The monster was invisible and existed the whole time. With or without the monster, it was always there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned Parasite and uh, Okja. I feel like... Bong Joon-ho's movies have such a clear and unique point of view, but do you think Mm -hmm. there's a certain Koreanness to them that sets them apart um, beyond that aesthetic? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think the interviews I've read about his films and how he talks about his culture, um, the the family structure and the power dynamics are quite true to his own experience. Um, And then just kind of all the other... And I guess we were talking about this recently during lockdown. I've just been seeking out a lot of those Asian dramas, comedy, psychological thrillers, and there is something really appealing about them. There is a lot of honesty. It's very transparent. It's pretty emotional, and I think there's something to it that um, I don't know if it's necessarily South Korean films, maybe Asian films um, that I'm that's resonating with me right now, and. Um, I mean, Bong was saying with the monster films as well, like monster films are not a popular or really known genre in South Korea. So he said when he 
told told people that he was going to make this film. People were laughing at him. But I think what's ironic in the end, it's not really a monster or horror film. It's so much more than that. It's it's a, it's psychological. It's a dark comedy. It's a thriller. Um, it's five genres in one, which I think is what he's famous for. So maybe he's carving out his own South Korean genre, which I kind of love. Yeah, I feel like yeah, he exists on this. Um, unique plane in the canon of Asian film, let alone Asian horror film. Um, mm. what's, what's your connection to Asian horror film in general? Well, I'm not going to lie. I am not the biggest horror film. <laughs> and the the concept of paying money to be anxious for two hours, it just definitely doesn't appeal to me. Um, and I think we were, we saw her Parasite together, didn't we? And I remember at the time, we, and we decided very last minute to go to the films, uh, cinemas to watch this. And I was... I remember saying, like, I don't know, like, I've just, I just don't know if I want to be anxious for two hours. But that was an amazing film. And what I liked about that style of film, like, I love psychological thrillers, is that it's, it's, it humanizes the characters, it's speaking to human tendencies and relationships and the inner workings of people. And it's a slow burn in that sense. Um, and I think that's kind of the most scary thing that, and the most horror thing that could be not some otherworldly animal that you know, has CGI effects. So psychological thrillers over horror is yeah. is my thing. Yeah, the thing, what's so scary about The Host and, like, uh, Parasite, uh, for me, maybe for you as, like, an Asian viewer, like, just the, the simple fact of seeing a family that looks like your family in these situations, uh, showing familial relations that are quite similar culturally to how you grew up. And it's like, oh no, how would we react in this situation? Like how, how, what do you think, how do you think your family would do if you were in a monster initiated <laughs> quarantine? And we're breaking out to rescue someone. Yeah. Um, so my family, <laughs> how would it be? Well, I've got, my family is like quite female oriented. It's like three girls, my mom and my dad. I feel like, yeah, I think we could work pretty well together. I think when like well, when we're given these tricky situations, I think we have pretty good teamwork. Yeah, I wonder how which one of us would be the one that's taken by the monster. I think they, we would be probably suspicious of the government anyway. So oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I caught up with writer and actor Ying Di Yin about her thoughts on Bong Joon-ho's 2006 monster movie, The Host. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think my family has enough, like, street smarts to outlast, like, a monster-fueled city lockdown. My but- don't. They don't? No, Why? hell no. Why? No, it wouldn't happen. Every time I, we watched World War Z last night and I was looking at Brad Pitt and then looking at my father and I was like, <laughs> nah. <laughs> Not. You're the Brad Pitt. I've, maybe oh, you're the Brad Pitt. Maybe I am. <gasps> you're the I Brad think Pitt. I am. I'm going to just assume that role. <laughs> yeah, okay. You can be the Brad Pitt. Uh, <laughs> or it's my nephew. I think oh, he yeah. would probably do better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Race Matters and we're talking about horror and race. Up next, we're going to hear from two black directors about what draws them to the horror genre. You 
listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Today we're unpacking the genre of horror, horror cinema, and how it's used as a storytelling device for tackling true horrors, really of colonial histories and its ongoing impact. Um, Darren, what was your first encounter with horror? Oh, okay. So I have a weird love-hate relationship with horror in that my earliest memories of watching horror movies was when I was quite young, maybe nine or ten years old. I was in the Philippines visiting family there and I had a bunch of cousins who we would hang out together and they were obsessed with horror movies, but at a level that I wasn't ready for at 10 years old. (laughs) And so it was, I remember one night we watched three horror movies in a row and I remember them so vividly. Number one, Juwan, the original um, Grudge, the Japanese version. Number two, Shudder, which is this Indonesian horror. And number three, Feng Shui, which is a Tagalog uh, horror film. All of them kind of existing in the same area of haunted individuals or ghost stories, Mm. but done in a way that is so unnerving and um, so um, profoundly horrific that as a 10-year-old in the Philippines with a lot of quite superstitious aunties and uncles, let alone my parents who would tell me as a kid never to mess with spirits, I was like, this is real. Like, this is real. And, um, And these horror movies became this thing for me that I was like, how much like I can't detach the connection between like what I feel, what these horror movies make me feel, and how something that might exist might make me feel. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I do like the feel of them now. Like now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, it makes me feel something. You know, it's an adrenaline rush. Yeah. I also think it's very heavy that you watched three in a row. I know. Usually it's one and then a comedy and then <laughs> yeah. like prep, you know, gear into the next one. Like, nah. but you just like deep dive. Deep dive. That's I like mean, six hours. It's a. It's it's it's. it's, it's hours. It's really heavy. No wonder. I don't know how you're like still not a little bit carrying trauma. I probably am. I think I am. I mean, I had a similar one, but I think my first interactions with horror was off screen and they were the stories that we were told as kids out on country. Um, My beautiful wild one country and my pop telling us like lots of different stories, especially like to kind of spook us into not um, mucking up either. But a similar one for me to towards your yarn there before was I was of the same age. I was like nine years old in Pakistan <laughs> and my cousins had made me watch The Ring for the first time and I was nine years old and that movie just, re- it was the American one and it really like messed me up because it was her climbing out of the TV that did it for me because mm. it was just like, this, the TV is meant to actually like stay in the TV. Everything that happens like, before all of that, like it was fine, but until she breached the TV, I was just like done. I was like, no, I'm un- I'm actually unsafe. I can yeah. never look at the TV the same way again. Yeah. <laughs> Our producer Tanya Ali also spoke to a few people about their first memories of horror too. So when I think about, you know, of course, you know, horror is ubiquitous in the sense that, like, you know, it's pervasive and it's everywhere. I would say it's probably the most important genre there is out there because it's it's done on such a huge level that even if you don't like horror, for example, you're still gonna end up watching something in horror at some point, no matter what. But uh, for me as a child, when I remember uh, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the name of it. It was a, it was this movie, it was a sci-fi movie set in space. It had Lawrence Fishburne in it. It is not The Matrix, uh, but you know, <laughs> it was absolutely, <laughs> And it, it was a horror sci-fi in space. Event Horizon, that's the name, Event Horizon. And I was I was like seven watching that thing. I should have been watching that. But 
uh, it, it scarred me very much, but it was one of those ones that made me be like, oh, this is amazing. I love this. I love sci-fi. I love fantasy. I love horror. And also to see a black person as a face in there, you know, being a, a true part of the actual story just meant so much to me. So, you know, that's when I think about the very first thing. That's Xavier Bergen. I'll let him introduce himself. Hey, hey, hey. So my name is Xavier Bergen. I'm a writer-director that's in Los Angeles. And, you know, for the, I am the director of Har Noir, which is a documentary that deals with the history of Black people in horror from the 1900s to today. Yeah, we'll get back to talking more about that documentary, Horror Noir, in a sec. But first, let's hear another early horror memory. What drew me to the the genre was just being around family to start off with, like being around blackfellas, especially my dad had this tradition of Sunday scary stories. And so every Sunday we'd jump in the bed and he'd tell scary stories. And I don't know what it is about blackfellas, but we love to be scared all the time. So... Um, we basically, that's where I kind of sort of learnt the art of horror storytelling just as a kid. And of course, growing up with all these crazy, uh, like traditional stories from where I'm from. And then it sort of graduated into going to the video shop and I'd always make sure I would grab like really just two VHSs back in, this is the 90s, like I Know What You Did Last Summer and Scream were my two go-to, which I would really call slasher thriller type uh, films, but I just kept um, hiring them out. That's Cody Bedford. I'm a writer, well, screenwriter. Um, I have directed my first horror short films, but I'm not ready to call myself a director yet, so I'm, I'm there. Cody wrote and directed Scout, a short film which was part of a First Nations anthology of horror shorts called Dark Place that premiered last year as part of Sydney Film Festival. Hot tip if you're a horror head, or even if you're not, all five films, including Scout, are available to watch on ABC iView. We'll pop a link over at our programs page, fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. Here's Cody again on what inspired Scout. Something that has fascinated me in my own research of you know looking up different crimes around Australia is this uh and around the world this like really serious and horrible thing of human trafficking and um especially when Indigenous women are involved in like missing murders like I've always said the line that you know it's it's quite evident that especially in the last you know 50 years that the police uh, didn't follow up because they were Aboriginal women. And I really wanted to put that sort of issue um, first and foremost up through this character of Scout who's been kidnapped and um, sort of buffies her way out of being kidnapped is the way I'd describe it. I call it Kill Bill but with an Aboriginal female lead, um, uh, which is actually saying that makes it sound way more better than it probably is. So, uh, yeah, just through identifying real-world issues and maybe if I could get one person to think and follow up on that, um, I feel like 
that is the power of storytelling and that's the power of art. So that's why it's so important. It's true. And horror does hold this very particular power, especially to tell stories that may be difficult to grapple with in any other genre. It's even when I'm sitting in a writer's room and just the different lived experiences and the the trauma that a lot of First Nations writers, creatives or people um, carry still. And I know, you know, I look back at my family tree and there's horrific things that I'm still learning. And um, just uh, for me, I think it's taking um, a genre like horror and writing something like, well, as I've said before, like the wanting to explore the notion of missing Aboriginal women and why police don't follow up on that. Um, it's just a way of perhaps engaging with a new audience as well. And horror has been like the most indie, open, uh, open sort of genre you can explore those types of issues. I mean, you even look at Invisible Man, which came out re- oh, recently, I want to say. I want to say this year, but this year's all been a blur. Um, but Invisible Man explored domestic violence. And I just love that horror can do this shine a spotlight on some of the horrific sort of human nature of things but also empower in a way an audience a survivor you look at something classic like scream um you know sydney in scream survives and i felt empowered as a woman like yeah she she ends up like killing the baddie so so um, yeah, I it's t- sort of two things for me. Like as a female, feeling empowered with 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 the genre, something like Buffy, which kind of turned it on its head. But also um, as a First Nations writer, uh, a person of color, like putting those horrors and trauma that we've we've lived um, into these things. It's kind of therapy as a writer. I'm not sure as an audience, but. Um, shining a light on those sort of issues that we've had to deal with. Screenwriter Cody Bedford there. And here's Xavier Bergen again on why he thinks horror can do what other genres can't. Well, I think specifically about it, what you're allowed to do in horror in a lot of ways is you're able to talk about these issues, about these problems in a way that still allows the audience to have fun, to be scared, but still get across, you know, what you what you want to talk about and what you want to deal with. Again, we go to the quintessential one that everybody talks about now when you think about Get Out and the fact that, yeah, it's fun. You can literally just watch Get Out and just enjoy it. But also if you want to go deeper into what Jordan is talking about when he's dealing with, you know, racism, when he's dealing with racism in liberal areas, uh, the taking of the black body, all those things are still there, but above all else, it's still just fun and you can enjoy it without having to dig deeper, though I recommend everyone should. Yeah, of course, we can't talk about black horror and the reclamation of the genre without mentioning Get Out, the completely iconic 2017 horror film that examines the utter terror that white liberals can bring to black people. So in Horror Noir, which is also available to watch for free via Shudder, again, we'll pop a link up on our program page to that, There are interviews with a bunch of people, including Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out, and Dr. Robin Armines Coleman, who wrote the book of the same title Horror Noir was based on and was a producer of the documentary. 
It's cool. Even just hearing the way Xavier talks about horror, you can fully hear his love of the genre. So needless to say, he had a pretty incredible time directing this doco. Oh, man, it was truly, truly amazing. Like, I think, you know, me as a director, the thing that I always uh, stuck out to me the most in it was when William Crane, the director of Blackula, uh, was talking about like, you know, what he did with that. And because you think about it, think about the fact that this man, he's a 23 year old man in the early seventies directing a huge movie like this. Like whether or not you, you can, you love it or not now, it was huge at that point. And I remember, you know, him talking about the fact that there was so much pushback to the very fact that he was a black man telling a black story, which you think it's crazy to even hear that, but it was the seventies. It was quite racist. It was quite messed up at that time. And, you know, you go back and you look, you think that someone that would make something that is so entrenched in our culture and our history that he would have this long career, but you look up and he really didn't get to have the career that he deserved because of the racism and bigotry that he dealt with. And that really resonated and stuck with me the most because it made me realize without William Crane, there is no making this documentary in the first place. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's the thing that really you know spoke to me the most. You're listening to Race Matters with Sada Khan and Darren Lasagas. We're talking the genre of horror and uh, how it lends itself to telling uncomfortable truths. Uh, up next, we're going to hear a little more from Xavier Bergen about how black horror has changed over the decades and his hopes for the future of the genre. Anthropology. You sleeping by trying to take all of me. Take your hands off my biology. You are listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. We're talking all things horror today and how the genre lends itself to story, to telling uncomfortable truths and its reclamation by black storytellers. Our EP, Tanya Ali, caught up with Xavier Bergen, the director of a documentary called Horror Noir, which traces the history of African-Americans and the horror genre. Here's Xavier now on how that relationship has changed over the decades. You know, it's one of those things that it's never, like, there's always, like, this, 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 this line that, you know, you can't go back underneath it, but you can still get close to the line, do better, get close to the line, do better. So, you know, I'll bring that to say, like, you know, how we as Black folks, you know, you had the Black exploitation, then, you know, that was good for a second. At least there was some type of representation, even not the best, hit the 80s, and we just disappeared. We disappear. We become the sidekick, or we're just not there in a movie. You hit the 90s, it come back in full force, but then a lot of the stuff is, you know, within, you know, what you would consider more, quote-unquote, urban for some folks that can be ghetto. And, you know, you still need those type of, like, you know, pieces, but we were still, we were getting more representation, but it still wasn't in the way that we had full control over what we got to say and talk about. And, you know, you look up to now, to today, and I feel like there's still more control is happening, more reclamation is happening, but we're still at a point where the people who are in charge, who can still, you know, dole out the money to make these films are still predominantly older and white. And they still have a very much uh, a control on what can be put out there. So while at the same time, we are seeing strides because 
of what's been happening because of the protests, because of the marches, because of what's been going on, that more black content is being made, quote unquote, black is back in a lot of ways. And I don't know, we might look up a decade from now and all the progress that we've seen that's been happening here could regress. You, you can't be sure, but here's one thing I know 100%. You can't take us back to the 90s. You can't take us back to the 80s. You can't take us back to the 70s. We're still, black people as a whole, we're still gonna keep pushing forward, but there's the idea that it's always like a curve upwards to more representation. That's not necessarily always the case. It's a really good, albeit sobering point. But Xavier's still optimistic about the future of Black Horror, especially after this very, very big year. So I think for me, you're going to see a lot more horror noir. You're going to see a lot more Afrofuturism. You're going to see a lot more, you know, horror that's specifically based in the understandings of you know, our culture as Black people, and not just Black American, but also going back to our ancestral roots as well. I feel like you're going to see way, way more horror that has our staples of Black culture in it that aren't necessarily hooked onto, you know, being in, you know, being in the ghetto or, you know, it's, it's, it's about a low-income family or things like that. Not saying that it's wrong to make those type of stories, but, you know, those have been pushed on us in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of filmmakers are going to be kind of like pushing back on that uh, to, a, to a degree. So I'm really looking forward to it because I feel like what we're going to see in the next decade or so, hopefully is a lot of black art, black horror, black sci-fi, black fantasy that is going into Afrofuturistic or horror noir territories that on a mainstream level, we haven't truly gotten to see a full breath of. And I'm super excited about that. But I'm also wary and cautious because I know that with these things happening, it is still at the behest of those who actually have the money and them saying this is actually worthwhile in the first place, which it is. It, it is worthwhile, but, you know, unfortunately, it's not always in our hands. There are also a lot of TV shows and films that have already gotten the green light that Xavier's really excited about. So I want to give a big shout out to Toronto Reeve Du, uh, the, the, uh, one of the producers on Horror Noir, who is also a writer on Lovecraft Country. That's absolutely amazing. Looking forward to Nia DaCosta's Candyman. That's going to be awesome. Very much looking forward to. Looking forward to Justin Simeon's Bad Hair. That's going to be interesting and really dope to see as well. Like, uh, there's, there's, there are these artists out here who I think are finally getting the true chance to run into this genre into horror that deals not with just having black people in it, but it specifically deals within blackness and what that means. And I'm very excited for it. I think we're gonna see more of it, but those are just three people already that are already making these type of moves, these type of waves after, you know, post Jordan Peele. And Jordan Peele's still doing his thing, of course, but what I'm, I'm truly looking forward to is, you know, being able to look up and say, it's Jordan Peele, it's Nia, it's Tananari, do it's this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. Like we, we get to look at it and see an entire cavalcade of people in this type of thing instead of like, you know, just one or two or three people, if that makes sense. And a little earlier on in the show, you heard from Cody Bedford, whose short film Scout was part of a First Nations horror anthology that premiered at the Sydney Film Festival last year. Looking to the future, Cody's got some exciting stuff coming up too. My partner Bjorn and I, who had uh, a horror film out himself in the same 
kind of anthology as a scout. His was Killer Native. We're working on a new uh, horror film set in WA, sort of around um, the Min Min Blight um, sort of, I guess, myth. Uh, and we're really excited. We've been delving into that. I've been ringing up a lot of family and getting their stories about Min Min Lights um, and seeing what, what they've seen out in the country. So that's kind of what we're working on. But there is, of course, a, a deeper issue um, in that film, which I won't say, but that's it. I, I pretty much, I didn't realise I'd be falling back into the horror film. I thought I'd just be sticking with crime, but here I am working on a horror film. <laughs> yeah, it seems like once you go horror, you never go back. You know, me, of course, because folks ask, well, do I want to do horror? And it's like, of course I want to do horror. So I've been working on my own stuff and I specifically have been, you know, working on, you know, a script that is specifically set in the deep south you know a gothic horror um that's like very much pulls from inspirations that i knew as a kid i can't say more than that but you know that's something that i'm working on i'm also working on another one that's like a sci-fi fantasy horror that you know specifically i'm working with another uh a writer me and him together are working on that and seeing what we can do with it you know for me personally i love sci-fi fantasy horror that's the things that i'm into that's what gets me excited and that's what i'm trying to dig into but of course you know you know knock on wood I'm not trying to spoil anything so you know I just say vaguely because hopefully the date when the day comes that any of these things get picked up I can come back and let you know hey this was that thing I was talking about love that yes let us know when that comes out we'll be first in best dressed for it we're so excited and um very keen to see all the mysterious things that are in the works for both Xavier Bergen and Cody Bedford and we cannot wait. You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas and up next we're going to be talking to ex-Canberran uh, Canberran? Canberran. Ex-Canberran sorry. Canberran. Uh, Filmmaker <laughs> Kane Gonda. Sorry Kane uh, about a movie <laughs> that sparked a global sensation. Uh, if anything I reckon it became like the most mainstream cultural critique of the horror genre. That's just me. Uh, told from a black perspective and made into a comedy movie. Uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. It came out about 20... Not about... It came out exactly 20 years ago, last month of July. It was written by two brothers, Sean and Marlon Wayans. I am talking about scary movies. Let's do it. Oh. I'm a scared of socks off you. For sure the shot stops all you. Knock your locks off and chop your watch off you. Lurking in the back like a crook in the black of the bushes. With the rats with the axe and the stacks of wood is. By the garage, the mirage tracks the shadow. My weapon is large for bodies, I'm strapped for battle. My soul is in the crossroads, it hides the feeling. Somewhere deep inside the spirit to rise the killer. I'm too distant to talk. You are listening to Race Matters with Darren Lasagas and Sada Khan. And today we are talking horror. Specifically horror through the lens of black creatives and creatives of color. Kane Gonda is an ex-Canberran filmmaker, lover of movies, horror included, and joins us right now. Kane, thanks for joining us. No worries. I feel bad because um, I feel like I'm the older cousin to you guys that, like, all the little ones yeah. I would just show horror all the time. Like, I, I was the bully. I was thinking you would force your little cousins to watch horror movies. Yeah, it was, like, something we did probably, like, every night because, like, my aunt would have, like, um, she'd have, like, a babysitter and then I'd go over and just be, like, hide a d- couple DVDs in my <laughs> backpack and stuff. And it'd be, like, Final Destination, like, Saw 4. Oh, oh Saw. Oh, my God. That's oh, hectic. God. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad. But but I, I agree with you, though. The Ring was, like, one of the the first movies that scared the shit out of me when she... Oh, sorry. Can I swear? Oh. You can say shit. Just don't talk shit. 
<laughs> no, when she comes out of the TV, it's like terrifying. It, yeah. it blew is. my mind. That breaking of the fourth wall, that was the one thing that was like keeping me locked in and not thinking of being too real. And we've been talking about yeah, yeah. the ways that like race and horror intersect and how horror as a genre has like a really unique power to tackle uncomfortable racist past and presence. But I feel like we can't really have this conversation without at least referencing a film. One that me and Darren brought up recently as well. And it's a global phenomenon 20 years ago exactly. Um, and I'm talking about the American parody slasher film Scary Movie. So, Kane, what do you think that movie did for audiences that no other films were doing? Well, it's like it's like Xavier said in that bit before. It was like people won't necessarily like horror movies, but they'll go see a comedy. They'll see something that's kind of, you know, uh, connecting. And if you can um, sort of, I guess strengthen up and watch something that is going to terrify you but you can laugh at it you're a bit it's a bit more accessible i think mm. like that was sort of like i said with my cousins before it was always like trying to get them to watch movies that they were too scared to watch but it was like something like scary movie was like it, it sort of like fueled my itch to be terrified and their itch to like laugh so we watch these movies like all the time and we were too young to go to the cinema because we like i think we first watched it when we were like eight or seven or something and yeah, it was right. like sort of one of these like unspoken, like you saw the poster at like um, Video Easy and it was kind of this spooky thing. It was like you knew Scream existed, but you just see this giant poster of like five people in an audience and like one of them has their like head cut open. Oh, sorry, this is a scary movie too. But um, yeah, both <laughs> of them. It's kind of like, it's this strange thing. And then you watch it and you're like, this is like hilarious. And I'm eight and I don't get half the jokes because it's all like, disgusting humor mm. like it's it's not great it's very lowbrow but I, don't yeah. know, I think there's some power in that um, when you're a kid watching that stuff yeah i mean you have a, a deep knowledge of horror movies throughout the ages uh what tropes were horror movies in the 2000s leaning on that scary movie was kind of addressing well it's sort of that post scream phase where you have okay cool we can be meta we can understand these tropes within like a broader context of the genre but then something like scary movie and like, I guess like black American cinema too, where it's suddenly like, okay, we've sat through the eighties and nineties of like always being the first or last to die. Um, we being black Americans, but also minorities in general um, to suddenly be like, here's a film that's directed by two, like, directed by a black man, written by two black guys. Like here's like the main cast are like sympathetic people of color. Mm. Um, and you, you really don't get that in a lot of, in the two thousands, you don't get that in a lot of films that aren't like actively geared towards a like a black or brown audience. Yeah. So for something like that to break the mold is just wild. Yeah, definitely. And it was like just speaking directly to those tropes as well. How much of these do you think still exist today? And do you think there's like new tropes emerging in horror cinema? It's it's kind of weird. I think like it's not so much in Scary Movie, the series, but the sort of like that mystical uh, black character and stuff still kind of exists weirdly enough in newer horror films. Um, but I, I do like the sort of change of like, it comes down to like I guess representation, right? Mm. Like when you actually have people of uh, people of the color that are that are being spoken about in the film, you're going to get truer experiences, and that's why you have stuff like Dark Place, which like cannot be told by like me or by anyone else who's not Indigenous, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Scary Movie is also like such an interesting case because when you boil it down, it's almost as if these horror movies couldn't be anything but funny. I mean, like you look at the timing, the pace, the editing. I mean, there's so many things that are happening in this movie where you're just like, okay, why? The kill has been going so fast now and now they're going really slow. Um, <laughs> and yeah, totally. Yeah, and sometimes it's as if like comedy movies and horror movies are cut in the same way. So why do you think it was important for Scary Movie to be a comedy as opposed to to say a documentary 
I think I, I'm not, I think to come from the Wayans too, who are a lot lighthearted in their content and stuff, it's something like, I think it, maybe it comes down to audience where it's like, we're sick of seeing the same sort of, um, the same sort of tropes happen to us. It's like, let's actually take those tropes and like mirror it. It's like, if you have like a whole audience of like um, people of color who are watching a horror film and we're all screaming at the TV being like, why the fuck would you do this? Like why, like me and my cousins being like, this is so stupid, like that you would run up the stairs when you're, when the door's right there. And then like to have that on the screen and you kind of interact with the film in that way, it's kind of assuring. Yeah, for sure. Kane, you're a filmmaker yourself. Uh, last year, your film Flesh Dream took home Best Death at the Bloodfest Film Festival and was also <laughs> yes. nominated for Best Film. So belated, belated congrats uh, on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but how much is your um, creative process informed by these tropes or the subversion of these tropes? Well, it's hard, right? So for Flesh Dream, we like... I wanted to have it make a film that was like so queer focused and stuff. And in that process, we were making this film. And then looking back on it, it's like there is the 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 lack of sort of like non-white voices in that film and in the production process as well is like totally in line with like student film work. Like so moving forward from that, it's like I want to make genre films that have our voices in there and like because we kind of proved that like, oh yeah, queer people can we can make something scary and you know, but then moving forward, it's like, well then where do I go with sort of um, identifying the rest of myself within my work. Kang, thank you so much for joining us on Race Matters. One more question, though, before we let you go, which we ask all of our guests, um, whether it has to do with filmmaking or not, um, when did you realise there was power in your race? There was power in my race? Mm. Um, I think when I – I think maybe you guys are similar where you kind of – you get to that point where you're sick of sort of – um, being treated different because of your skin color or whatever, or like your, you know, all the shit you have in your life that you kind of like, actually like I can, and you meet other people of color as well. And you're like, Oh, we went through the same thing and we don't even have the same cultural upbringing. Like I think that was when I noticed I had power. Yeah. There is a sense of solidarity, especially in the creative fields when you're kind of totally. competing with each other in a weird way. Um, uh, especially unconsciously, whether you're competing with other creators of color, when you find that your experiences are rooted in similar things, it really is such an empowering thing, hey? Yeah, yeah but it, so I guess like maybe it's different in music and stuff, but in film, yeah. I really like working with other people because it's kind of like you don't, it does, it's not that same kind of jumpy kind of feeling. Mm. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we actually all exist and we can actually build each other up, which is great, I think. Yeah. Kane Gonda, thanks so much again for joining us on Race Matters. No worries. We're near the end of the show, but want to give a big, big thank you to all of our guests today, Kane Gonda, Cody Bedford, Xavier Bergen, and Ying Di Yin. But Sarah and I are still with you for a couple more minutes, and I don't know about you, but it's made me want to watch horror movies tonight. I know. Well, it's so funny because before we came into this, we were all <laughs> telling and sharing scary stories to kind of set the vibe weirdly, <laughs> and it definitely did set the vibe. There was one moment where like Tanya went to the bathroom and we were like... In my mind, I was like, she's never coming back. <laughs> oh, my God. While she was in the bathroom. Should we say that like, she was like, 
I was like, do not say I'll be right back. Because that's one of the rules that you cannot oh, break yeah. in Scream, in the first I Scream movie. I can't believe we, made, we split the group and, like, Tanya went off. I know, we let like, her go. But, like, we're all people of colour, so what will happen? Like, who I knows? know. But, yeah, when you were gone, something, in, there's, like, a little sculpture <laughs> in the studio that we were sitting in and it fell down. As we were telling as a story. We were t- as Sarah was telling me a scary story. Yeah. It was, like, it, it, Darren knocked it. Let's just let me make that very clear. Darren was, like, his face was, like, a picture <laughs> Like, he just had his jaw dropped. He was like, oh, my God. I was like, I can't feel that because I watched you knock it down. You might not have felt it, but I saw it. Let me have it. Let me have that, okay? Let me feel that. It was fully like, Sarah, it's happening. I was like, it's not. It's not. But I see where you're going with it. Um, And I'm the first one to believe all of it. But in that moment, I was just like, I watched him knock it. I can't even act like I, you know, like it could be some other force. But, like, talking about all of this also made me, like, think, about when we're talking about scary movie, right? And everything that Kane was talking about it with, you know, that movie guiding us through lots of like our own experiences with horror and scary things happening um, and reclaiming our race and our power through that genre as well. Maybe actually think about, because at the start of the show, I was talking about, um, we were sharing stories about our cousins and them forcing us to watch scary movies. And when I watched The Ring and the TV and all of that, it like freaked me out and I got so scarred from it. And I stopped getting scared from um, the Ring after watching Scary Movie 3. Well, there, because there you go. Because the, the Ring was the focus of Scary Movie 3 as a parody. Brenda. Brenda. She just oh. helped. I'm sorry, but that scene where Brenda fights <laughs> a little girl in the well, you know? And, and she And she, she says it very clearly. She's like, you know, black people are being attacked all around the world, but we all got to stop for one little white girl in the oh, hole. Oh, my God. She, said, she does say that in the movie. She hey. says that in the movie, yeah. Oh, and I was she's like, literally actually, like, the news is on. The news is on, and another little whitey fell down the hole. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, it's like, who cares? No, no, not who cares. No, but just like, oh, my God. But just, like, I was like, oh, she's not that scary anymore. Like, yeah. she just, like, fully cut through all that nuance and all of the fear of what that little girl was about to do. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was great, and it definitely did, like, diffuse my um, anxiety about her coming out of the TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Scary Movie works on so many levels in that it just, like, yeah, dissipates our collective trauma of horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was scared of, like, Saw as a kid. I guess that's more queasy than it is. Saw? I have my thoughts on Saw. But also, isn't the, the Saw era of Scary Movie the era of um, Scary Movie's franchise in which the Wayne brothers left? It was. It was, definitely. And I mean, like, the first Saw so movie was... Bad. was, it was bad. Yeah, it was... Okay, <laughs> yeah. And that's all for Race Matters, guys. Um, <laughs> no, but, like, Saw was definitely much more in the um, torture porn era. Like, that's mm, when Hostel came out as well. Yes. House and of Wax. House of Wax. Paris Hilton. Paris. I loved that movie. I watched it for Chad Michael Murray, though. <laughs> White oh, Boy yeah. Fever. One Tree Hill. Oh, my God. That's another episode. Okay, don't bring that in yet. <laughs> One Tree Hill, Chad Michael Murray, House of Wax. He was a bad boy for the first time ever in his whole movie television. I know my Chad Michael Murray, like, archives. So. <laughs> Whoa. Is that? Yeah, that's his, like, I'm not a boy, not yet a man moment. Yes, it is. That was his Britney Spears moment. <laughs> we are really digressing from the core of this episode, which was the fact that horror movies are telling stories in ways that no other genre is telling them. And it's reaching out to audiences in such a way that it's making people reckon with their like 
intergenerational trauma, the trauma that, that exists in their current lives. And, you know, in the case of sci-fi horror, in the way that Xavier explains, you know, the future. Like, mm. what does it look like in the future? What does horror look like in the future? So, yeah, um, I really want to watch a horror movie tonight. I don't know which one I should watch. I don't. It's got to be Get Out. Oh, Yeah. I feel like you got to watch it. We talked to it. It's got to be either Get Out or Scary Movie. <laughs> both. Both. Do both. Right, and I, think they, I think they combine together really beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is our parting gift. Uh, you have been listening to Race Matters. You can find us at fbiradio.com slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Race Matters. 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 Race matters.